0: Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. One moment, a business is on top of its game. Profitable and well-respected In the next moment, it could be the victim of a major fraud with potentially catastrophic consequences financial losses, damaged reputation, diminished stakeholder value, scrutiny, even bankruptcy. These stories are all too common in today's business headlines. While some organizations recover, others don't make it. How do you minimize the risk of fraud and avoid the devastation? Welcome to Fraud Talk with host Chris Marquet. Our goal is to prevent your organization from becoming one of the statistics. Now, here is Chris Marquet.
1: Welcome and good morning, Fraud Talkers. I am your host, Chris Marquet, on the Voice America Network platform. Uh, Great to have you all with me. Uh, today we have a terrific show uh, for you with my special guest Stephen Taylor he is the deputy district attorney for San Joaquin County in California and he's going to be sharing with us his experiences and advice after prosecuting white-collar criminals for the past 33 odd years uh, or so and uh, but before we get to that a little bit uh, uh, reminder about uh, who I am uh, I've been doing private investigations for over 30 years myself uh, including hundreds of cases involving uh, business Crimes started my own firm, Marquet International, about uh, eight years ago now, and have been running hard ever since. Uh, My interest in fraud really stemmed from the experiences over those decades, uh, and particularly uh, after I started writing about it uh, in my Fraud Talk blog. And what I found is that uh, you know, the amount of fraud we see going on in the United States today, and indeed around the world, is just staggering and overwhelming. Uh, So, I've developed uh, in response uh, my fraud SWAT team, which includes forensic accountants and computer forensics experts and traditional <laughs> investigators to respond to this uh, apparent e- epidemic, uh, which, uh, which continues uh, unabated. As we know, as many of us know, my mantra here is at any time in any organization, there's somebody who's up to no good. And uh, fraud is everywhere. It's claiming victims as we speak. And we're here to try to tamp it down, minimize it, and squelch it. Um this past week just as an example this past week we had a record week for a major embezzlement cases in the United States in the news. Uh, we cataloged uh, at least 29 major cases of embezzlement, that is uh, theft from empl- by employees or former employees of over $100,000 in the United States. And the total losses to those organizations was $28 million. Uh, again, uh, I think this is the tip of the iceberg because we don't see lots of the small fraud that goes on that doesn't necessarily get prosecuted. Uh, that doesn't necessarily uh, reach uh, reach the headlines, uh, but as you can imagine, it's uh, costing U.S. businesses, you know, just millions and millions of dollars every year, and it's devastating. And some businesses simply are not recovering. So the, the call-in line to Fraud Talk is 866-472-5790 if you'd like to join the discussion. Uh, later on, I'll be taking calls if anybody's interested to, uh, to join uh, in with me and Stephen. Uh, you can also find us on all major um, social media, including Facebook. LinkedIn and Twitter which uh, we're at fraud talk and we use hashtag fraud talk one word Uh, you can also follow, follow us on our blog fraud talk which is on blogspot also, you can contact me directly at chris at marquetinternational.com, M-A-R-Q-U-E-T international, all one word, dot com, if you've got a question, comment, or suggested fraud of the week. Uh, which brings us to the fraud of the week, uh, which uh, was submitted by uh, Fraud Talk listener Joe from Illinois, and it is the case of an alleged $10 million embezzlement conspiracy uh, by a now former executive of Miller Coors, David Colletti. Uh <clears throat> This case uh, actually surfaced uh, back in April or so earlier this year uh, when it was announced by Miller Coors that they were conducting an investigation and cooperating with federal authorities in a case. But uh, some of the details finally just came out this week. And essentially, uh, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel uh, that that just published the article uh, a couple days ago – Millacores is actually sued in civil a civil action, uh, two former executives and a number of other individuals accusing them of a combe- uh, an embezzlement conspiracy with more than ten million dollars from the company, uh, basically through phony invoices for undelivered services that spanned over a thirteen-year period. Uh, you know, folks, this is not uh, uncommon. I mean, the, vol- the 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 dollar amount here is big. The time span is a little bit longer than we normally see, but again, not an not an uncommon uh, scheme uh, for somebody in an authority uh, that has control over a business segment, and essentially, in this case set up uh, phony companies and sent fraudulent bills to the company for payout, which essentially he uh, allegedly approved and then shared in the, uh, in the proceeds with various other folks uh, involved. Um, <clears throat> the scheme wasn't, apparently wasn't detected until this year because uh, he controlled the internal budget, uh, which was millions and millions of dollars uh, that uh, that he ran, uh, which included advertising and all kinds of things for beer sales to uh, directly to uh, various you know bars and o- other establishments. Um, according to the 40-page lawsuit, uh, Coletti and his wife Pamela created a shell company that accepted the embezzlement funds, and Coletti and others also created other front companies for the sole purposes of submitting fake bills to Miller Coors. According to the suit. Um, the uh, the company flagged a particular invoice that went into the company uh, that was listed to, to an individual who also had a uh, the same address for another company, another vendor, and that that sent up a flag I- internally that then helped unravel this case. Uh, but the claim uh, alleges you know civil theft, fraud, breach of fiduciary duty uh, against Coletti and another fellow Edwards, unjust en- enrichment, civil conspiracy, racketeering, and seeks damages and costs. Uh, This fellow, Coletti, was the sales director for the National On-Premise Chain Accounts. From 1992 through through 2001, and then in 2002, he was promoted to senior director of the division, essentially in charge of the entire uh, budget. Uh, and on sales, on premise sales includes you know bars, restaurants, stadiums, etc., uh, where he's got um, uh, total control, as well as uh, supermarkets and drugstores and other retailers where he had a multi million dollar budget. Um, so Coletti, who's a 55 year old uh, uh, individual. Um, he apparently was involved in an investment in a hotel locally, which uh, ran into uh, trouble last year and went bankrupt. Uh, again, this case is just breaking now. Uh, he's being sued civilly uh, by the victim, but also being pursued uh, on the on the federal level for prosecution. They they have not indicted him at this point, uh, but we shall see uh, how that develops, and we'll keep you folks informed. Uh, we'll post this case up on our our um, fraud talk blog for the fraud of the week so uh, having said all that uh, as an introduction i'd like to bring in uh, my uh, special guest stephen taylor and stephen um, is the deputy district attorney for san joaquin county Uh, welcome stephen good morning well, good morning to you, and uh, just a little bit about uh, Stephen's background. He, uh, he's got his undergraduate degree in business administration and economics from Holy Names University in Oakland, California, and then he, uh, in, uh, he in 1980, he graduated from the University of California Hastings School of Law in San Francisco. That happens to be one of the best uh, law schools in the country, and passed the bar in 1981. Uh, he's been serving as a deputy district attorney in San Joaquin County uh, since October. Uh, October of 1981 and has been prosecuting white-collar crime and consumer and business frauds ever since uh, he began. Uh, Stevens also spent about uh, 15 years uh, prosecuting sexually violent uh, uh, cases uh, going all the way back to 1998 and a variety of other types of prosecutions as needed. Um, Steven, again, welcome. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So you've been a you've been a career prosecutor. Tell 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 us tell our audience here you know what got you interested in in fighting fraud because essentially you went directly from law school. Well, you had a business background in in undergraduate work, and then you went to law school, and then as soon as you got out, you went right to the. Uh, to uh, to becoming a prosecutor. What well, uh...
2: kind of a that was kind of a second choice. I was going to be a banker. I was inter- job interviewing <laughs> with banks for yeah. electronic banking uh, for legal work in the you know the, for the uh, arrival of electronic banking back in 1980, 81 that kind of thing. But um, I wanted to do something involving business, and this was. Very attractive. I had a, uh, a friend of mine who had kind of pushed me through law school, uh, a, a sitting judge in Alameda County, who was saying, well, you should be a DA. They wouldn't let me be a DA, so you do it and see how that goes, and then you can you know, do whatever. But you should do that for a few years to get the experience. So I said, sure, why not? It's a job.
1: Right, right. And the economy at the time, I think, was probably not the greatest, as as I recall, going back to, to my time back then.
2: I remember being happy about getting benefits because I was paying, back then, I was paying quarterly for health insurance in law school because by, in those years, you had aged off your parents' uh, policy at 21 yes. or so. So all of us were making quarterly payments to Blue Cross. I think maybe it was $25. I found it annoying. It's amazing <laughs> looking back on the things that that... Got our attention back then,
1: and you found that more annoying than than paying your your student loans for law school. <laughs> well, I
2: had eighty five hundred in student loans at the end of a law degree,
1: which which was actually not so bad, uh, but still a lot of money back in nineteen eighty one time.
2: We didn't. We didn't. What do we have to compare it with? My tuition was twelve hundred dollars a year.
1: Yeah, well, that's pretty sweet. So, so, but you told me, Stephen, I think we, t- we spoke a b- uh, offline, we were talking about how your parents were victims of fraud. And this, yeah, sort of shape- were, this also shaped you.
2: Uh, yes, it did. They were uh, victims of an investment swindle. And what I remember about the time, I was too young to be able to do anything about it, uh, or including to talk any sense into my father. Um, but uh, what I remember about all of that experience, the cons were coming out of New York City. And to me, you could take one look at them and know they were cons. But my father was incapable of looking at them and recognizing the horns and the tail. Uh. And that's true of most of our, a lot of my victims, too. I might add. Uh, I mean, I knew they were. I knew they were evil. I knew they were lying. And. My father was a physician, and physicians have very little sense when it comes to uh, money and business.
1: Yeah, they're good. They're good at what they at the trade, but they they tend not to. They tend to fall apart on the the business side of that.
2: Well, it's not just the business side. It, most anyone in the caring professions is impaired when it comes to evaluations of character. Mm. The, it seems that the two are incompatible. You know, nurses, doctors, um, whatever. But in, in any event, um, the Father was a physician. He had partner. It was a um, multi-specialty practice. There were seven physicians. uh, Dad was a general surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, OBGYN, internal medicine, whatever. Now, Dad only was taken for a uh, smaller amount, and, of course, he was able to survive it. One of his partners uh, lost everything, lost the house, lost the interest in the medical practice, went bankrupt, was basically wiped out. Oh my goodness! So, and what kind of? What kind of had apparently they they roamed around the United States doing these things with no fear, no concern from the local police and district attorneys.
1: What was the? We only have uh, thirty seconds before you take a break here. But what was the nature of the fraud?
2: Master records window. Oh, you're going to buy a master record. You're going to put in ten thousand right off a hundred thousand from your income taxes. We keep the ten thousand, and everybody's happy. It was a, So it's a slightly different swindle than what I see where they're promising 20% or whatever, uh, you know, the, the above market interest rates and they just steal the money. But it was, it was the same sort of thing. Give us your money. Trust us. Wonderful things will happen. Right, right, when right. When IRS audits you, you will be completely destroyed. <laughs> All right. Well, that's uh, this is,
1: that. That would have been uh, shocking, especially to uh, a, a young man growing up, uh, seeing his father getting uh, it wasn't ripped off. So shocking.
2: Don't, I mean, you know, there were other. I mean, again, this was a this was an issue with these doctors. They had judgment issues, so it wasn't mm, well, just this. So I wasn't totally shocked. And again, right. my father's investment and his subsequent losses were not uh, as devastating as his partner, who was wiped out, or one of Man. one of his uh, associates was wiped out.
1: Sad story. All right, we're going to take a break now, When we come back. Uh, Steven is going to continue. We're going to continue with Stephen talking about his experiences prosecuting these cases, and in particular in San Joaquin County, which has been very, very successful in dealing with these kinds of, uh, of frauds. Uh, we'll we'll be back.
0: Our highly competitive business world is fraught with risks and challenges. Critical business decisions must be made on a daily basis with precision when significant capital is at risk. When your organization is faced with a decision point involving opportunity and risk, consult with Marquet International, global experts in due diligence, investigations, and litigation support. Marquet International Professionals assist organizations with vetting key individuals and businesses, as well as conducting sensitive employee or executive misconduct investigations. Our experts work with Corporate counsel to develop facts and intelligence related to parties and circumstances in litigation, including conducting interviews, deep background investigations, and asset recovery inquiries. We are recognized in the area of fraud investigations, response and business controls consulting. When circumstances require sensitive and and professional fact-finding, turn to Marquet International, world leaders in investigations and risk mitigation. Visit MarquetInternational.com or call 617-733-3304. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Fraud Talk with Chris Marquet. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to Chris at marquetinternational.com. That's C H R I S at M A R Q U E T international.com. Now, back to fraud talk.
1: Welcome back, fraud talkers. Uh, my special guest today is Stephen E. Taylor. Uh, he is the deputy district attorney for San Joaquin County, in uh, based out of Stockton, California, uh, and uh, he's been handling uh, various white collar fraud cases since 1981 and uh, we've been enjoying uh, his uh, uh, telling his story uh, as getting started as a prosecutor Uh, Stephen so we we, again we were talking about how uh, your father was ripped off by an investment fraud scammer and um, how you know since that time you've you've probably put away 30 or more of these uh, these kinds of investment fraud, schemers. yeah, I've done about
2: thirty cases on sale of unregistered securities and uh, failure to disclose material facts on the sale of securities. And this is uh, a, this is on the,
1: s- the state level, obviously, uh, which well, has state
2: charges. But the 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 charges mirror the federal statutes, right?
1: And do the so do the do the feds then take an interest in, the, in these cases sometimes
2: after not you've... at all, <clears throat> not unless
1: so they so you know being in California, it's a very large state, very large economy. Necessarily means lots of fraud in general uh, relative to other, some some other states. Um, but it seems like your San Joaquin County, uh, you you've had a dis- I, I mean, I get you. I get a. Uh, Uh, an announcement every week it seems from another process successful prosecution that you've handled uh, in your jurisdiction Uh, is is that simply because it seems to me like you guys have been very successful uh, relative to some other counties. Our
2: our tactics are a lot different than the other counties and I guess the real advantage is because I've been here 30 years that we've tried different things over the years and the things that work we tend to increase so we sort of have a machine going Plus, well, tell, I have a tell, pretty tell unique about, situation with my elected.
1: Yeah, tell, tell, tell us about that. How, tell us how you've, you've structured the department, how you handle the, the cases, and, and, and why you guys are so successful, at
2: least in, in your eye. Well, we treat the scammers like criminals, which is kind of unusual. Um, I mean, the other thing is we minimize police um, manpower on these cases. Um, we use the police to serve the search warrants serve the arrest warrants but the workup is generally done by the uh, on the large embezzlements by the victims of forensic accountants once we actually file the criminal case then we hire the, the accountant to testify and to do preparation for trial but so we you ex- have we don't have an in-house accountant some places do i know the state does but right. we don't so have a actually- budget for that
1: you bring, but you so you bring these forensic accountants in as uh, you know as the experts who help develop the proof of loss.
2: The initial workup is done at the at the expense of the victims, which is a business expense. So,
1: but sometimes it's difficult. Uh, I mean, I've seen lots of cases where where the victim is basically devastated and doesn't necessarily have the money. How do you handle in a case like cases,
2: that? In, in those cases, which we don't see an, a lot of, but there's, they do happen, we just we do the best we can with what we have to work with. I have filed felonies on victim letters with no police report. Uh, victim letters with the paperwork attached in rare cases. And we had that particular person arrested, I think, in the, uh, was it in Guam? Or it was a partnership embezzlement where they literally emptied all the bank accounts um, drove to the airport and dropped the lease car at the airport and disappeared and left a note saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. We had that person arrested in Guam that came back um, for proceedings in Superior Court, but what was kind of interesting is that the victim um, the victim signed the arrest warrant declaration, mm. and Superior Court read that, uh, looked at the attached paperwork, and said, yeah, and initially refused to sign the arrest warrant because they said it's a partnership embezzlement, it's not a crime. Well, the law changed in 1974 in California that made partnership embezzlement a crime. Previously, it wasn't. At common law, the partner owned 100% of the assets, so they couldn't be charged with stealing anything. Uh, right. That was changed. And, and the, the, the judge said on that one said, no wonder I didn't know that. It was changed the year I graduated from law school. So yeah. I didn't you know, have that in school. Well, I did have that in school part uh, partners can be charged in California with embezzlement anyway that partner was brought back and they just cleaned everything out and ran off with with 100% of the assets leaving the elderly partner here it was a young woman and an older woman in a partnership and the um elderly woman who had founded the business was left with all the debt and all the money gone um but the point is that did you um, also charge with like elderly abuse I don't remember. That was a long time ago. I don't remember if, uh, when I say a long time ago, it could be 20 years. I mean, I'm, I'm going back 30 years in some of these cases. But it was an unusual case. We turned on a dime, uh, got the warrant out, got that uh, defendant brought back, and I believe we got a conviction and um, some or most of whatever of the money was restored. Wow, but the point is that if you call the police on a story like that, they say that 's not a crime that 's a civil case, which is what they say on a whole bunch of things, especially the investment crimes
1: so that that 's a very good and important point here, something that I want uh, uh, to share with the the audience here, the listeners is. How you know at what point does one and who does one call when 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 you have an embezzlement case or a fraud case? Wh- where do you turn? I mean, I get that question. It's you like okay. You turn to the
2: professionals, which is part of a problem with our, a lot of my victims are cheap and they don't want to hire accountants. Uh, they don't want to deal with professionals, uh, and then when when everything hits the fan, they want to call nine one one. Get into competition with the burglary and robbery victims and demand services, and it's not going to work.
1: So, in other um, words, the the police department, which is you know their number one priority is you know public safety. They're dealing with crime. murders and rapes, and et cetera. Mm-hmm. They're they're going to look at a white collar crime case and say, eh, "Yeah, we don't really have the resources." Nah, this is a well, civil. Well, it's
2: not just that they're going to say that; they're going to say that essentially that we are they are now triaging and that there are, we have nothing available for you. Uh, so on white-collar crime, with these, what the victims need to do is to plug into the local network of professionals that handle this thing, which would be uh, that partnership embezzlement was brought in by her attorney. Her attorney was a fairly prominent criminal defense attorney. And he called us and said, look what happened to this poor little old lady. And right. then they called the cops and were, and were told that the cops were not available for this. And again, you can't compl- when you look at the the situation that the city and the police are dealing with i i can't I can't complain they They do what they can with what they have to work with, and they do serve the search warrants and arrest warrants but p g and e writing their own search warrants right. for example, same situation p g e was having problems with theft from their customers. when I say That's... theft, they were stealing the meters, switching the meters, building bypasses into the houses, just going crazy. I work with the PG&E loss prevention people for at least a year or two. They ended up writing their own search warrants, going to the judges, getting the judges to sign their search warrants. Then when they called the police, they would say, this is our uh, PG&E loss prevention or loss control people. We have a signed search warrant from Judge X. Here's the original. Uh, There's the house. Oh, and by the way, that meter on the side of the house is a stolen meter. So the real meter is... Is inside the house, you know, because the customer switches it periodically, and go get it, and the cops go got it, (laughs) and but the point is they minimized police resources.
1: The P- PGD, folks, is Pacific Gas and Electric, by the way, yep. uh,
2: which is the, the, Anybody, the big any, utility any in California. You can sign a search warrant affidavit or an arrest warrant affidavit. It doesn't have to be a police officer. Now, we're not encouraging this willy-nilly, and it's being done with our uh, supervision and approval when it happens. But the point but you, is that if, it, the cops are, if the cops are tied up, you do what you can to minimize the, the demands and the drain on police resources.
1: Right. So, so, but in San Joaquin County, the, the, so you, you're, you, you, you bringing in, you're using outside resources. I mean, particularly after the 2008 crash, uh, and a lot of municipalities were really hurting. Uh, I think in Stockton, you know, went bankrupt, uh, has gone bankrupt and, and you probably lost a significant number of your, uh, your law enforcement, uh, personnel.
2: Correct. But it's not reasonable to, sh- to give the police a couple of boxes, shoe boxes of records and say, you provide free accounting services. Go through here, tell us whether or not we've been robbed and how much we lost and who did it. And now, that's what other, was going on. So, in that's other what words, you have fraud fraud uh, uh, examiners for.
1: Right. So, in other words, get the CFEs in there, the accountants, the forensic accountants, private uh, investigators. Yeah, private investigators. Yeah. Get, get us in there. Uh, do you know? Do the analysis through the books and records. Figure out you know the who, what, why, where, and when, how uh, the monies were moved, and how much it was. Uh, because this not only has uh, particular import in the prosecution. Because when we hand this over, hopefully with a bow, uh, to the Stephen Taylors of the world, uh, we also are going to be handing it over to our insurance carrier for our fidelity bond coverage to hopefully get some. Uh, uh, recompense some um, some recovery uh, from our fidelity coverage,
2: correct? They're paying off like a hot slot machine. When the fraud examiners, who are CPAs, are submitting the insurance claims and uh, proctoring the insurance claim, they get paid in record time and full payment.
1: Because we're talking to real professionals. They know what they're doing. Uh, their testimony stands up in court, and that's, uh, that's critical. Oh, they'll,
2: they'll turn in pie charts. Uh, they'll turn in... The point is, the work product they put together is better than anything the police could do. Right, right. Well, this I mean, is the, just so a this, stack of canceled checks with an adding machine tape and affidavits of forgery would you know, be a start. Um, police don't do that. Right. And the, vic- so. the victims, the further you get, I mean, the first, getting the victims out of this and getting independent professionals to uh, collate the evidence uh, is important. Um, and when I try to warn the victims about that, if the victim does the investigation because they can't afford an accountant or they say they can't or they don't want to spend the money, guess who becomes the star witness? Guess who's sex life, uh, drug use, um, uh, you name it, uh, gets, uh, gets brought out in, on the stand and so on and so forth. Right. The Defendants usually have uh, uh, assembled some blackmail evidence while they were stealing just in case they needed it. Right, and of course. By using the professional, the victims minimize their time on the stand and minimize the invasive cross-examination they would otherwise face. All they have to say is that I own the business. I hired that bookkeeper three years ago. I trusted her and didn't look at anything. Uh, my check started bouncing a few months ago. I brought in the accountants, turned over everything to them, and they tell me I've been robbed. Right. Now, how do you cross-examine that by asking how many Vicodin a day are you taking for that car accident? (laughs)
1: All right, we're going to take another break right now, and we'll be back uh, shortly.
0: Our highly competitive business world is fraught with risks and challenges. Critical business decisions must be made on a daily basis with precision when significant capital is at risk. When your organization is faced with a decision point involving opportunity and risk, consult with Marquet International, global experts in due diligence, investigations and litigation support. Marquet International Professionals assist organizations with vetting key individuals and businesses, as well as conducting sensitive employee or executive misconduct investigations. Our experts work with Corporate counsel to develop facts and intelligence related to parties and circumstances in litigation, including conducting interviews, deep background investigations, and asset recovery inquiries. We are recognized in the area of fraud investigations, response and business controls consulting. When circumstances require sensitive and and professional fact-finding, turn to Marquet International, world leaders in investigations and risk mitigation. Visit MarquetInternational.com or call 617-733-3304. What do business and sports have in common? Both are based on competition, and the goal of each is the same, to win. If you're in business, you need an edge over your competitors. You need to innovate and improve. You need to make adjustments to stay ahead of your competition. Tune in to The Business Locker Room with Kelly Riggs. Get the playbook and the coaching you need to improve your business performance. The Business Locker Room airs live every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Up to date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866 472 5790. 866 472 5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Fraud Talk with Chris Marquet. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to Chris at marquetinternational.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at M-A-R-Q-U-E-T international.com. Now, back to Fraud Talk.
1: Welcome back, Fraud Talkers. I am your host, Chris Marquet, and with me is uh, today is Stephen uh, Taylor, who is the Deputy District Attorney for San Joaquin County in California. Uh, he's handled hundreds and hundreds of white-collar fraud cases uh, and a variety of other types of prosecutions over the years and has developed uh, what seems to be a fairly unique and but very effective method for prosecuting these uh, sort of their, your everyday cases of fraud and embezzlement uh, that afflict uh, businesses uh, in and around uh, his jurisdiction. Uh, welcome back, Stephen.
2: Glad to be here.
1: So we were talking also about, you know, how does one, you know, when does one come and who do they talk to? Am I a victim? Where do I go? How do I respond to this thing? And and, uh, and you described how the most important thing is, you know, at least, you know, from your perspectives is to gather as much information as possible, hand it to the professional forensic accountants and lawyers uh, and others that can help bring the case together and then bring it to, uh, in your case, the district attorney's office rather than the local police who tend to be much more concerned with, uh, uh, you know, the triaging, uh, you know, violent crimes, etc., as opposed to white-collar crimes, which usually gets further down the the totem pole.
2: Yes. Correct. We we can be reached 24-7 by the local forensic accountants. They mm. all have my cell phone, right? The lawyers uh, know how to reach us too, but the vast majority of these things are coming in through the accountants. So uh, they'll bring. They,
1: so they're going to bring the case to you. When does one go to the Feds? I mean, there, there's a. I mean, it seems to me that they have a higher threshold for you know dollar amount threshold. Well, better and also,
2: because they're very family staffed. they they um, We have at one time we had hundred deputy DAs in San Joaquin County, which is what six hundred thousand people. And we had a hundred prosecuting attorneys at one time. We've reduced the, the office since then. But the U.S. Attorney's Office in Sacramento, covering uh, a very, very wide territory from the Oregon border down to um, Stockton, certainly, and then uh, south of that, I think had twelve uh, prosecutors or, or some, you know, twelve, twenty, something like that. They do. They are not set up to handle bread and butter cases. For 10000 to 200000 to 400000 they don't have the staff for it. Right. On the other hand, they work with the federal law enforcement, such as the FBI and the Secret Service and so forth. They can handle multi-jurisdictional cases, uh, cases crossing state lines, cases that are statewide involving large dollar amounts.
1: Right, so they're um, going to be happy to look at complex, international, uh, high-dollar-value
2: types of… It doesn't um, have to be complex, although it, the Fry's Electronics case was international. And right. it would have been difficult for any DA to do that because a lot of the money-taking and the money-hiding was done offshore. This is the fellow, Siddiqui, who was the, I think, purchasing guy. But the at purchasing Fry's. Agent who was taking kickbacks from international customers. Right. And I and believe they, they, some of the kickbacks were coming to him in other countries.
1: And that was a, to the tune of, was it over $20 million or something? I, I'm 14 trying to million Yeah, huge uh, amount of money. Once Amazing. in a while
2: you see a case, we had one that we call Fraudzilla because it was so big you couldn't get your arms around it. There were a whole bunch of people involved, a huge amount of money and a broad geographic jurisdiction. Uh, where things were going on all over California and outside of California, I believe. The Fed's, uh, or one of the larger jurisdictions eventually took that. We looked at Fraudzilla, and the more we looked at it, the more we realized that we could not handle it. If we even tried to, it would knock us out of all of our other work. Right,
1: right. So t- tell us, tell us, Stephen, about you know a recent case or two that you've been handling of sort of a typical case that that uh, that you've got going, or that you just put somebody away. Mm-hmm. Maybe give us a description of that, and how, you know how the fraud was perpetrated. The kind of uh, the kind of uh, uh, well, there's a case. case
2: we did with the feds that was unusual and interesting, involving a county employee who took a hundred thousand, just a hundred thousand, from mm. the county of San Joaquin by manufacturing phony invoices. The she had the authority to create a vendor on the system because she was acting controller for the health plan. Right. So she created. Um, phony vendors that actually were her credit card companies so wfb services was wells fargo credit card uh, <laughs> premier something or other was her credit union and so on down the line she, would so just she do was a essentially deviation. paying off she was paying off her credit cards well she had been doing this to the tune of about two hundred thousand uh, a year for six years at her previous employer then she came to us and she was hired and um and she was hired to create financial controls to make sure that we didn't have embezzlement at the county health plan, which was... Time fine. out. Time, time out.
1: Time out, Stephen. So the prior employer, what, shit her because no, of the fraud? No, they never knew, they
2: and they never, they never would knew. have known. Uh, okay, okay. Well, I spent five hours talking to her about all this, and she said that uh, what she was doing there was a needle in a haystack. They never would have found it. And they didn't find it until we told them. Uh, when she started the same thing at our uh, health plan... Uh, red flags started going up within 30 days. I don't even know if she realized, um, you know, that there were. Well, the county auditor controller, which was not in in house there, they were in in Stockton. The health plan is down in French Camp. Was beginning to um, be annoyed. Would be one way of putting it about those creation of those new vendors. I think she didn't realize that they were proctoring that behind the scenes. Mm. and they started asking questions as to why are these vendors being created and who are they. So internal um,
1: audit, a- or internal audit yeah. actually picked up
2: on it. It wasn't an internal audit necessarily. The county auditor controller functions as the bank. Mm. So all the checks that were being drawn on the health plan are being drawn as county warrants through the auditor controller. When you set up a vendor, uh, it goes through the auditor controller's office, although the orders were coming from the defendant at the health plan. They wanted to know more about these new vendors, but they weren't talking to her. So she, wasn't, she didn't quite realize that she was setting them off. So she kept doing what she was doing. They called her superiors to find out why, why are these new vendors being created and who are they. Anyway, but in the middle of all of that, after about when she, by the time she was up to 100000 in five or six months, one of the credit card companies called the County Auditor Controller, asking why are your checks being used to pay for this woman's personal credit card every month wow. for, you know, 10000 plus a month. And that was it. Uh, the auditor controller called the district attorney's office. The DA's office uh, had our own criminal, our own police department, our own criminal investigation staff. Uh, they went on to it, and uh, they did search warrants for her credit card accounts and her bank accounts. Now, here's where the real fun started. She had taken about 1.2 million from the previous employer, but no one knew about it. In examining her bank accounts with the search warrants, they discovered the checks from the other employer being used exactly the same way that the fraud checks were from the county. So although we only had 100,000 in losses, what we discovered set off an audit at her previous employer, and, and they knew exactly where to look now because they had the vendor names. Now they, uh, they found the 1.2 million. What is she, so what now is this we're woman... up one, 1. $1.3 So this is brought into me, and I said, well, we've got a, a mere 100000 locally, and then all this money from an out-of-county victim. Mm. The, uh, the previous employer was out-of-county. So now we've got sort of a conflict here. Uh, so we called the feds, and they graciously took that case. And the defendant cooperated fully, confessed to everything, in a five-hour meeting with the U.S. attorney and the DA's office in Sacramento together. Uh, we, we drove up there and met with everybody, and the case was handled federally. That was the first time um, that I personally have worked on such a joint prosecution.
1: So how much time did she get?
2: She got 30 months. Mm. Uh, so she has to serve nearly hundred, you know, 95% of that in federal right. prison. Right. That was a downward departure, but uh, the U.S. attorney said on the record that because of the cooperation of the defendant, they and the FBI together had no more than 20 hours invested in the case, including five hours interviewing the defendant. Mm. And that they so. were able to um, um, protect their own resources. What about restitution? Words, they could do this while still continuing all this other work they're doing. Right. What about restitution, yes. Stephen? It's ordered, but you know restitution. How are they going to pay one? How how is someone like that going to pay one point two million?
1: Well, what did she do with the money? I'm guessing that she spent it on you know fixing up her house and maybe a vacation home, trips, Uh all kinds of travel.
2: What's that phrase about? um, You know, you put too much money in the the best house in in the neighborhood, and what what type of return you get on that? Right. Uh, Her house is in foreclosure now. The U.S. Attorney's Office has a restitution enforcement unit. Where they have a legal staff and and a criminal investigator staff in the restitution unit, we don't have that. And they will, they will, they 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 explain to me what they do, but they do some pretty um, um, intense things to shake that money down after sentencing. We don't Mm. have staffing for that.
1: But that's a good thing. So, I mean, it's amazing to me, uh, one of the things, it just amazes me, for, number one, that how much of this stuff is going on. It's happening every single day. Uh, number two, that people, these perpetrators think they can get away with it i mean it seems to you me can't that there's blame a certain... the
2: defendants i'm sorry it's the victims that create these crimes not the defendants this whole thing and i my background i worked in a medical office for many years i kept the books at dad's office general ledger payroll payable so i do have experience with office accounting this is no different than hospital infections that you can't blame the bacteria because people are getting infected when they go into a hospital for one procedure they're getting hit with everything with all types of infections across a disease spreading if you are running the hospital in an unsafe manner you're not uh, proctoring the washing of hands and enforcing sanitation this is what you get and this so is another thing in other
1: words the, the the lack or the weak business controls, the weak internal controls, uh, the, the allowing for a single bookkeeper, for example, or a single individual to have control over all facets of finance, that's literally setting yourself up.
2: Many of my victims do not believe it is nice or proper or good or politically correct to run the business in a business-like fashion because someone might not like it. So you have right. to hire people out of rehab to handle your books. Oh, I've seen that one over Great. and over. You have to retain people in the accounting department when they uh, associate with parolees, live with parolees. Uh, they're gang girls, perhaps. And, and, and most of my defendants are not that. But uh, it, the syndrome I'm describing is where the, def- my, the victims tend to run a loosey-goosey uh, accounting operation. Right. Because they're right. too busy being everybody's friend right. and telling me that they treated the defendants like they were family and they're not family. Yeah, we've heard instead that a million times. A correct, instead of running a proper and correct business environment, it goes back to the hospital infections.
0: You All can right, Stephen, we're going to have to take...
1: We're going to have to take our final break, we'll be, but we're going to come back for our final segment, and uh, we'll continue this discussion. Also, Stephen, i want going to ask you about some of your advice on how organizations can, you know, protect themselves and 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 prevent this stuff from happening. Uh, so we'll be back. Okay.
0: stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Are you and your business well-prepared for what you may ask? Well, what about workplace violence, cyber attacks, or general business disasters? Listen for Fear is Negotiable Business Survival Skills 101 with your host, Pamela Hill. We'll bring you case studies of the businesses that don't prepare and the consequences that can happen. We'll also bring you best practice strategies that can help you keep your business running smoothly. Tune in to Fear is Negotiable, Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. highly competitive business world is fraught with risks and challenges. Critical business decisions must be made on a daily basis with precision when significant capital is at risk. When your organization is faced with a decision point involving opportunity and risk, consult with Marquet International, global experts in due diligence, investigations, and litigation support. Marquet International Professionals assist organizations with vetting key individuals and businesses as well as conducting sensitive employee or executive misconduct investigations. Our experts work with Corporate counsel to develop facts and intelligence related to parties and circumstances in litigation, including conducting interviews, deep background investigations, and asset recovery inquiries. We are recognized in the area of fraud investigations, response and business controls consulting. When circumstances require sensitive and professional fact-finding turn to Marquet International world leaders in investigations and risk mitigation visit marquetinternational.com or call 617-733-3304 Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now toll-free eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero. That's eight six six four seven two fifty seven ninety. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to fraud talk with Chris Marquet. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to Chris at marquetinternational.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at M-A-R-Q-U-E-T international.com. Now, back to fraud talk.
1: Welcome back Fraud Talkers. Uh, My guest today is Stephen Taylor, the Deputy District Attorney for San Joaquin County in California. And we've been talking about uh, white collar fraud and prosecuting. And uh, we were just talking about how Really, uh, Stephen is describing how the the victims of these crimes that happen every day, by the way, uh, have no one but themselves to blame. And uh, effectively, you're talking about a, you know microbes in the hospital. Uh, they've got they're looking for a host to infect, and uh, uh, you know if you're not keeping a, a sterile environment, you're gonna you're gonna be a victim.
2: Correct? It doesn't have to be completely sterile one, but at least try. Right.
1: So, put something in place. have you know be vigilant. Uh, you know um, what what is your thought on you know recidivism and people? you know if you're hiring people who've had a prior history of something or another uh, of of criminal activity of one kind or another, is that a wise thing to do, or is it no, to, you don't want
2: anybody near your books where there is a question of fidelity uh, and that and it's not just the money, the records physical ac- i mean the janitor physical access to the records um you know the key to the office um period if there's a question of fidelity no they, they're not suitable right
1: yeah cuz i mean in in, in my research it, i mean there's there's definitely you know uh, a certain percentage not a huge but a certain percentage of cases where you know you got serial white collar criminals who just go from one company to the next like well, exactly like the case that you described well, they get I, away I, with it and they keep going
2: i've worked in, in sexually violent predators for 15 years where that was pure psychiatric psychological testimony all of my defendants uh, the, the, the embezzlers, they're not necessarily evil. Some of them are very, very compulsive. They're impulsive, compulsive. They're, they're, you know, they, I, I could say they can't help themselves, but I could also say they're not going to help themselves. These things are going to happen. They're like microbes in a hospital. That uh, If you have them in the operating room, you're going to have problems. So you have to make sure people enforce hand-washing and good practice. The same thing at running a business.
1: Right so, but so you describe uh, these folks as some some of them very compulsive, and what I've seen this is a different topic here is that a lot of cases involve you know people then have gambling addictions that uh, they start stealing or they started stealing, and then they go gambling and it kind of feeds off each other, and uh, of course, at the end of the day there's nothing to recover because it's all been pissed away. Have you seen uh, a connection there between uh, gaming the gaming industry and, and yeah. Your embezzlement believe,
2: case? I believe about half of my uh, embezzlement cases involving your typical female bookkeeper are casino related. We, I tell the police that when you do make the arrest, the first thing you do is search them for casino cards and take them as evidence if you find any.
1: Wow, that's exactly what my buddy uh, Kurt Benkley, he's a, dis- a ADA up in uh, Milwaukee County uh, told me uh, when, uh, when they're doing their same, same prosecutors. Look, look for the gambling uh, connections and the receipts. Well, and, either uh, that
2: or drugs. One of my defendants uh, told us that she was doing 30 Vicodin a day at work. Well, Ugh. during the day and going to work every day. She was a Vicodin addict.
1: How does one function?
2: Well, but addicts work their way up to. Well, how does the how do the kidneys and the liver survive is the main thing, but they keep walking around for quite a while. Mm. Um, but that's what an addict, a vicodin addict will do, and there's plenty of that going on. And sometimes it's secondary to car accidents and major surgery and trauma. I mean, so it's not like these people are born evil or that they ask for this. These things happen, and so, for the employer to to sit there, keep this person at that position. Uh, and then say, well, I don't know anything and I'm not, you know, I'm, uh, what, what was the employer thinking of when, when this person uh, was, was working under those conditions? And right. there were some signs of it. I mean, this, this stuff was not unknown.
1: So yeah, because what I've seen again also in in our research, you know, you see, you know, you, you, you see a often a female, which is a very interesting fact. Bookkeeper, small business uh, businesses, the the business owner is disinterested in the accounting and the man and the, the sort of day to day administration That's perfect, of the company, um. and uh, and. Uh, they had otherwise led a you know a, a clean life uh, and they, they had children they have Most children. They go off to college. They get divorced. They go. They go. You know, college tuitions, divorce, and maybe there's a, a gaming addiction that develops, or some other thing happens, and then they and they decide, oh, I can. Let me just. I'm just going to borrow this money. I'll pay it back. Uh, but of course, when they find out how easy it was to steal, then they keep stealing, and it becomes compulsive. Is that is that kind of what you see a lot?
2: For the bookkeeper embezzlements, that's typical, and it starts small and gets larger until it gets so large it gets discovered. Or the company right. collapses, or they get laid off because they have to outsource bookkeeping because there's no uh, pro- there are no profits anymore. Some of our they, our defendants were discovered when they got laid off because they had stolen so much. <laughs> they put themselves out of business. <laughs> they put themselves out of business, and it was discovered by the new uh, bookkeeping, amazing or, or, or whatever. Um, so t- but the defendants aren't all bad, but they are thieves. But they're uh, you know they, they raise many of them have small children. Many of them were married. Their husband says uh, he doesn't know what was going on, and, and, there, and there's some reason to believe it. Um, however, he did sign the joint tax return with her, so he's in a world of hurt now from the tax people. We do report uh, what we know to the tax agencies.
1: So oftentimes then people end up having a tax case against them as
2: well. Oh, yeah. Mm, that's well, it, which sell- file separate returns if they're going to be stealing? <laughs> oh my goodness!
1: <laughs> well, we have about a minute left. Let's just quick uh, uh, give us your advice on you know what what should these you know typically small businesses and other organizations do? Nonprofits, religious organizations, what should they do to help
2: protect themselves? Get, get insurance. Watch the books, and then try to get some sort of, of class training for, for ownership on accounting practices. Maybe through the Chamber of Commerce or a trade association, there are lectures about good what good practice is for accounting and record keeping.
1: So, and you say you say watch the books, and I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, again, often it's you know the the disinterest sets up the the fraud.
2: Well, there are other things. You rotate assignments, and you have people who don't like each other having to work together in accounting. So it's a check and balance. You don't hire a bunch of relatives. We've seen that yeah all stole yeah. together, so yeah. you bring in polar opposites you um, uh, um and they're very there are very good ways of doing that you know rich, poor uh black, white, fat, thin um, uh, uh, young old people who are not going to buddy buddy, and you yeah. make sure they're in everybody is in everybody else's work right,
1: right, so cross pollinate it, uh, mix mm-hmm. it up, change duties, uh, multiple signatories on checks, things like that.
2: Yeah, actually, I think the checks, the people should really be cutting back on check writing. That's another problem with outsiders getting your checks, at your, your real checks, and then um, copying them, forging them, altering them, and so forth. Outside okay. auditing is, is good, and it's not that expensive. You can even have the local uh, university students coming in to do uh, random audits as part wow. of their class assignments. Well, that's good advice.
1: Uh, Okay, well, listen, we're going to have to cut it short here. It's been a great uh, discussion. Uh, One last thing, Chris. None of this would
2: be possible without the elected DA's uh, support and their own conviction that we can make a difference in our town and protect our people. And you you've,
1: you you cer- you certainly are Stephen you're a, doing a great job in San Joaquin County California p- putting a lot of people away uh, we you know, the citizens appreciate it I'm sure and w- and we love it um, so I want to thank you uh, thank you for joining me uh, join us next week 10 a.m uh, Monday uh, for our next fraud talk edition our guest is going to be Tom aajmy who's he's a co-author of the book financial serial killers inside the world of Wall Street money hustlers swindlers and con men among other things so thanks everybody thank you Stephen, for joining us and we'll be back again next week
0: thank you for listening to fraud talk this week please join chris Marquet again next monday at 7 a.m pacific time 10 a.m eastern time on the voice america business channel don't become a victim of fraud tune in for another show soon